Okay, so I've long been aware that this podcast is in some sense overdue for an episode about what you would call uh, the problem of divine hiddenness or theodicy, that is the explanation for why evil and suffering exist uh, despite uh, the supposed reality of a good God. Uh, for everyone, really, I mean, atheists and theists, this is the question. This is what makes belief in God hardest for theists. And for atheists, indeed, this problem is very often regarded as a sort of knockdown argument for God's non-existence. And um, listeners of this podcast may have heard me sort of get into it obliquely or indirectly uh, and seen me struggle with it uh, in various episodes, because regardless of whether or not you think you have answers, you always struggle with suffering. You always struggle with moral and natural evil. And um, But uh, this episode is going to be my attempt to make my views more clear on it and lay out what I believe to be the justification for our suffering. So um, my original plan for this episode was to just kind of bracket moral evil and say that, well, the reason moral evil exists is that we have free will. Um, and so it's not God's fault. It's, it's our fault. And that was a little bit naive. But I thought I would just focus on natural evil um, because that was the one that seemed really hard to explain. And then I read a book called The Doors of the Sea by David Bentley Hart. And um, in that book, um, Hart is so insistent that, you know, it's like the suffering doesn't serve any constructive purpose, or even if it does, it can't be justified. Uh, uh, and I realize a lot of, you know, other theologians, you know, hold the same view. So I realized I, I have to sort of engage with their views uh, before I uh, you know, lay out mine, which are in the vein of so-called uh, what John Hitt calls uh, Irenaean theodicies, theodicies that focus on uh, soul making, that it's like suffering is used to develop some kind of virtue. I would argue the chief moral virtue is love, and that's really specifically what suffering is to help us develop. Strangely, or strange though it may sound, but I'm going to get into that. Um, just a disclaimer, I haven't read Hick's book. I hope I'm not inadvertently plagiarizing any of plagiarizing any of his arguments. I like to read books for free, so I've only heard of his work. I, I sort of know uh, from secondary sources what he says, but I haven't read the book. If I say anything that's actually what he said, then, you know, just consider consider this my giving credit to him in advance, even though, you know, I mean, in philosophy, it's actually very common to reinvent the wheel. So, so yeah, Hick points out uh, that Keats used the phrase a veil of soul-making. He called this world a, a veil of soul-making, and that was the purpose of all of its kind of trials and tribulations. And before him, Irenaeus and Origen argued similar things. So I'm not necessarily doing or saying anything new, um, but... Uh, Hopefully I can say some old things in a new way and provide a, a cogent um, sort of defense or explanation uh, for the problem of evil, uh, moral and natural, uh, on this uh, podcast. 
So let's get into the views of the people that I, whom I disagree with. Um, there's Hearts, The Doors of the Sea, which is the one book that you could say I did read <laughs> in preparation for this podcast. And, you know, I spent like two hours or so reading it and I never figured out exactly what the author's views were. And I'm not sure whose fault that is. It's certainly mine. <laughs> But it's probably also the authors. We're probably both at fault for that. But as far as I can tell, he seems to be offering a kind of free will defense for the existence of natural evil, attributing the occurrence of things, uh, or, or at least holding out the possibility that, you know, natural disasters and so forth can be laid at the feet of principalities and powers, um, whom God just had to give, uh, uh, free will to mess up the cosmos if they so chose. I'm not going to get into how plausible this is. I mean, from my point of view as a theist, yeah, I mean, it's it, it has some kind of uh, prima facie possibility slash plausibility. But I, I, I'm not really interested in that question. I'm more interested in the question of if that were the case, um, would that be justifiable? So, you know, like, uh, like I said at the beginning, I was going to sort of bracket moral evil and just focus on natural evil, but in engaging with hearts, maybe views and, and certainly others views, uh, other people who hold the view that, you know, natural disasters are attributable to principalities and powers, Satan and his angel demons, uh, whom God gave free will. Um, uh, I've, I've had actually to, to bracket natural evil and just focus on an abstract uh, case or scenario in which the only, you know, let's imagine that the only kind of evil that there was in the cosmos was moral evil. Can free will justify that? So, um, I read on Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy that Swinburne argues that in some sense, free will is only as valuable as the number of degrees of freedom that it comes with. And in, and in some sense, that's, that's really right. So if God didn't give us freedom to do great evil, then he wouldn't have arguably given us a freedom that was, you know, worth giving. And I, I actually sort of agree with that, but it's because I believe that ultimately uh, evil and suffering, uh, insofar as we learn from them as, you know, consequences of our actions, you know, they can have a constructive purpose. But I think a lot of people who offer a free will defense would disagree with the idea that evil and suffering serve constructive purposes. You know, they don't want to lay it at, they don't want to uh, lay the blame for them at God's door at all. So they want to just attribute them to uh, agents like us and, and devils. So, but anyway, let's imagine a moral scenario in which, you know, the only kind of evil that exists, there's no natural disasters or floods or anything. Uh, no parasites, diseases. There are just, uh, let's say, good people and bad people. And God either cannot or does not restrain the bad people from hurting the good people because he doesn't want to infringe on their free will. So this this gets into two things. First of all, is, is free will intrinsically valuable? I don't think it is. Uh, um as I may explain later in this episode, I believe with Sam Harris, um, you know, other people, uh, that, that really 
the cash value of all moral claims does sort of reduce to uh, their implications for the uh, aggregate well-being of conscious creatures. So I, I, I don't think, and I think that's all morality can mean. I, I don't think free will uh, is intrinsically valuable. I think it, it's instrumentally valuable um, insofar as granting creatures many degrees of freedom allows them to sort of act on the uh, spontaneous impulses that are, you know, the the acting on which is part of their their flourishing. But but I don't think it's just somehow intrinsically valuable to to have free will and not be restrained from doing what you do, even if someone claimed that it was. And even if someone were perverse enough to claim that somehow free will is the only intrinsic good, what do you make of the fact that evil, the bad people, in using their free will to restrict the free will of the good people, are depriving the good people of their free will? So, I mean, if God values free will so much, why is he not intervening to prevent its restriction uh, at the hands of the bad people? Um, you know, there's two sort of justifications that one can give for, you know, why God might not intervene. One is that, you know, it, it, it lets people learn from the consequences of their actions or the consequences of others' actions. But I, you know, for people who are, you know, virulently antagonistic to Irenaean theodicy, um, you know, that, that comes perilously close to acknowledging that suffering and e evil might have some constructive purpose. So, uh, you know, my hypothetical opponent can't go that route, even though that's the one that I'm going to go down. So, you know, to let us learn from actions is not the reason that God uh, refrains from uh, intervening uh, in the misuse of free will by bad agents. Um, but, you know, one cannot say that, you know, uh, God never constrains people's actions because he does. He sets all kinds of limits on our actions. This world is not just uh, uh, some uh, theater or arena in which we can do whatever it, it pleases us to do. And indeed, you know, all theists believe that at the end, God is going to um, make us pay the price for our actions um, he's not going to just let us get our way, uh, our wicked way, you know, indefinitely. I mean, the truth is we ourselves recognize the importance of intervening in um, uh, the bad actions of, uh, you know, moral agents all the time. You know, that's why we consider it right for a cop to intervene uh, when someone is doing something bad. You know, if we believe in objective morality, which as theists we ought to, then it's either right or wrong for the police to prevent, you know, a murder from happening. If it's wrong because, um, you know, that would be an imp imposition on the murderer's free will to intervene at all, then we have to, you know, condemn cops for doing that. We have to prevent the police or any, any vigilantes from trying to deal out justice because it's wrong to intervene in someone's exercise of free will, you know, because if it were right, then God would do it. But see, then if it is correct as a matter of objective morality to intervene in the misuse of free will, 
then why doesn't God do it? So I, I think that the idea that, um, you know, uh, all the evil in this world is, is due to God just, you know, letting us exercise our free will, you know, either he's letting the demons and the devils, you know, have their free will to mess up the cosmos, or he's letting Adam and Eve have the free will to step out from under God's authority and um, thereby, you know, fall into the clutches of demons and devils, which like, first of all, that, that turned out to be shockingly easy to do, right? It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Gary Larson's Far Side cartoon, where the airplane passenger is um he's he's he's, re he's reclining in his chair and he accidentally hits hits a button it's the wings fall off slash wings stay on button and you know he presses the button and you know you know triggers disaster and that's kind of uh how i picture the the view of theologians who try to attribute all evil to to uh god's creatures um it's like it's like, yeah, you know, we, we pressed the button. It's because of us that the wings fell off, but it's like, who, who made the button? Who put it there and who made us dumb enough to press it? Right. So no, I, I think that the distinction between a permissive and a positive will really evaporates into meaninglessness for a being, uh, who is omniscient and omnipotent, you know, as theists suppose God to be. That is, everything is laid at the feet of God, including all the suffering. And at this point, you know, a lot of people would be tempted to say, you know, the suffering, it just cannot be justified. So we have to leave its existence as a mystery. You know, a lot of theists would say that. But my response is simply, if God could not have created a better world than this, then that is the justification. But if God could have created a better world than this, you know, you're in a spot if you if you're claiming that God could have created a better world than this, but He didn't. So we we have to offer a justification for suffering because if there simply is no justification for suffering, then God hasn't created the best of all possible worlds. Any world in which there was no suffering would be better than this one. And you know, some people might say, well, you know, the math of any world is just super hard to balance. You can't just willy-nilly throw out some world that is just like this, but it has no suffering. And it's like, yes, I can, because God can do miracles. So what such a world would look like would be this world, but maybe with just a few more, you know, uh, suffering alleviating miracles. If there is, you know, zero justification for suffering, then God can and should be doing miracles to alleviate it. Um, I recognize that all this sounds uh, uh, very much like, you know, I'm arguing against God's existence. So maybe I need to jump in here and offer, you know, my reasons for believing that a good, that, that, that a, a loving God exists. They're quite simple. Um, uh, why does God exist? Um, because uh, order does not come from disorder. One might point to evolution and say, hey, look, the order present in living organisms came from the disorder of the evolutionary process. 
where did the evolutionary process come from? Ultimately, it came from the fine-tuning, the laws of physics and the fine-tuning of the constants, i.e. a vastly greater level of order than is seen in living organisms. So don't give me that and tell me that that's order coming from disorder. You've only, you know, radically heightened your explanatory debts um, by pointing to evolution. Um, so, you know, either one supposes order comes from disorder, ultimately, which makes no sense, or one supposes that there's an infinite regress of, of, you know, contingent, you know, causes, and it's order from order from order, but none of that order is God, and it never terminates in God. But um, in my other episodes, I've gone at uh, some length to explain how uh, the idea that all the members of an infinite set can be real at once is is really supposing an infinite totality and that's a contradiction in terms in other words an infinite regress is just not logically possible but i'm not going to get into that argument here so for me it has to determine order has to terminate um in, in an intelligent uh designer but you know who says that designer loves us because if the designer doesn't then it's just as bad for us as if no designer existed right Okay, so the first question we have to ask is, uh, is there is there any sense in which we might exist as byproducts? You know, maybe God doesn't value us at all, but, um, you know, he just had to uh, create us according to the logic of some inflexibly regular process that he's just bound by some external constraint to obey. But, um God is ultimate reality. The buck stops at God. There's no external constraints beyond God. And previous episodes, I might have spoken as if I were on the fence about this. Um, uh, but now I no longer am, if I ever was. And, 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 uh, you know, the God logically has to be ultimate reality. And, and for that view, I, I have to thank. Um, uh, Christopher Langan, the author of the Cognitive Theoretic Model of the Universe. Uh, I don't agree with him on everything. Um, uh, by no means. Um, uh, his political opinions are incredibly controversial, and even some of his ethical and theological opinions I disagree with, which um, I get into in my eighth episode. But earlier I said it's, you know, not uncommon to reinvent the wheel in philosophy. Well, the CTMU is a thing, is a wheel that I could not have reinvented. Um, and in it, Langan argues persuasively that God is ultimate reality. Um, so, uh, yeah, I believe that God as ultimate reality, as, as you know, the, the source of all things, he's not affected by any external constraints. He's not forced to create. Uh, as the result of the logic of some inflexibly regular process, uh, a thing which he does not um, value. And, and, and any thinking to the effect that, well, we do just exist as byproducts is ultimately just an appeal to naturalistic or externally deterministic thinking, which is a complete non-starter logically when, when, when we're talking about ultimate reality. And of course, the view that it, God is in some vague sense ultimate reality has been shared by other theologians uh, uh, than Christopher Langan, but Christopher Langan is just the one who's most rigorous and, and persuasive about it. So, okay, if we exist at all, you know, then we 
we're valued either extrinsically or intrinsically. Intrinsically valued means loved, by the way, valued as an end uh, in our as ends in ourselves. Um, and if you take the idea that God just values us for extrinsic purposes, that's again really just appealing to the idea that He faces some external constraint. He needs us to overcome some limitation or obstacle that He that He faces, and that that just doesn't make sense. The only the only explanation that makes sense for why we exist is that we are loved by God. And that's really what I argue in my eighth episode. But I mean, you know, the hardcore atheists are free to disagree with me and just suppose that it is turtles all the way down. Um, and moreover, that the universe does not have to be sort of self-perceiving or self-knowing uh, uh, ultimately. Or that ultimate reality, if you prefer, does not have to be self-perceiving because things can just exist in a way that makes no reference to perception. And have fun with that one, too. So, no, um, I, I consider materialism to be intellectually bankrupt, although it took me, admittedly, a long enough time to realize that it is. I was, I was an atheist for quite some time. Uh, before I before things came together uh, for me uh, philosophically, and that was uh, in large measure uh, due to my not having discovered the CTMU, but to my actually reading it about ten years after I learned of it. But anyway, I am digressing. Here is my thesis. This is why I think suffering exists. The purpose of this existence is so that we can learn to love in an apparently senseless world. And and notice I'm not saying that the purpose is to love God, although it is. I mean, I'm just saying it's not the purpose initially or right from the outset. And and the reason I say that is that in some in some level, I think on some level, I think atheists and, and theists are in the same boat. Atheists claim not to believe in God, but they do believe in some kind of ultimate reality. Uh, and, 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 and theists, um, you know, claim to believe in God, but, but we theists, all of us, have many false and limiting conceptions of God. And it takes a lifetime, indeed it takes an eternity, in order to root out all those false conceptions progressively and replace them with more and more approximately accurate conceptions of God. So the reason why I say that, you know, it, it can't be about loving God directly, at least not from the outset, is because, um, you know, in, in the outset, you know, that, that requires belief in God. And, and it's, it's arguable, you know, whether even theists believe in God. Do they, you know, to what extent do they believe in God? How accurate are their views in God? And if they really believed uh, what they claim to believe, why don't they behave differently? Um, although I think sort of recognizing the behavioral implications of our abstract propositional beliefs is another big reason why we're here. So I, I'm saying that we have to learn to love in an apparently senseless world. So why do I say we have to learn to love? Well, in, in earlier episodes, I've argued that love is a hedonic and a moral perfection. Um, in other words, I don't believe it's a coincidence that the that the being whom we hypothesize uh, as theists to be the most uh, uh, moral is also the most blissful being or mind. 
Um, you know, and I'm talking, of course, about God or God's mind. Um, over the longest of time frames, I believe that the way that one maximizes utility, if you want to use that language, uh, as I like to, um, uh, love, the maximal love of all by all, is the way that that is done. Um, and in terms of being as happy as possible, even just speaking about one's own, you know, as it were, selfish or self-referential happiness, um, it, it's a little bit like like Scrooge in the Christmas Carol. Is he is he happier before or after his transformative experience uh, with the ghosts? Well, he's happier afterward. Uh, when he finds that you know he he loves the people who are in his life, and the reason for that is like you can you can see it if you just inspect the character, the felt character of love, uh, phenomenologically as it were, um, you can see that looking upon or encountering or thinking of someone whom you love is intrinsically rewarding. So that all else equal, um, if you loved everyone in your life, you're going to have more joy than if um, you loved no one in your life, um, especially if you don't even love yourself, you know, then you're just cold and apathetic, which is what all of us are to some extent, you know, that's kind of what Jesus was talking about. He said, you're not hot or cold enough, so I'll spew you out of my mouth, you know, you're just lazy and, and afraid and complacent. And, and this world is, you know, part of the, the tests of this world are, are to make us less lazy, afraid, complacent. Okay, so, you know, why does, um, why does love require suffering? Why does it require facing limits? And the answer is that, you know, for God to have maximal love, um, that does not require God facing any test or overcoming any, you know, uh, uh, challenges or, or hurdles. Um, God is, you, we might say, an unlimited or infinite being, um, although that's kind of a problem because, you know, the criterion of whether something exists is that it's exists in consciousness and to exist in consciousness is to be defined whereas if you're infinite or unlimited then technically speaking you're undefined but the ctmu is, is it, it, sh it shows us the right way to think about these things the ultimate reality is not undefined per se it's self-defined it's it's just not defined by anything outside itself so you know i you could if you want say god is unlimited or his love is unlimited um I, I technically, I think it would be more correct to say that it's just not affected by any external constraints. So it is maximal, uh, and God just possesses maximal love, you know, hedonic and moral perfection. Uh, that is, you know, bliss perfection and and moral perfection, just as as the nature of His being. But we don't have that, and so we have to face limitations and suffering in order to grow. And, 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 and to see what I mean, just imagine if this world were super comfortable and there were no problems, no obstacles, no difficulty or danger in the face of which we, we had to test our love. And would we not just become extremely complacent um, in such a comfortable world? And would we not fail to develop uh, any moral virtue, uh, 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 including love?
I mean, I think we can all see in our own case that that the tendency when things get comfortable is for us to stagnate and not not to grow. Although, of course, at times it seems like the tests um, of suffering and of life are so are are set so high that no one can pass them, and they just become broken and traumatized by them. And I'm going to address that later. So, uh, um, limited beings like us, just to continue my earlier point. Limited beings like us, uh, we do require, we do need to overcome limitation, uh, in order to come by additional love, uh, to grow in love freely. Because what would happen, you know, just grant me for a second my premise that, that this reality, the purpose of all the challenges that we go through in this life is so we can either grow our love, that's one way to look at it, or to realize the implications of, of, of the behavioral implications, what it means uh, to love um, in the way that, you know, we think we do. We might abstractly believe I love this person, but then when we're put to the test, we learn, okay, behaviorally, this is the implication of, of the love that I, I claim to hold. And it's, it's sort of, uh, it's difficult to do, but this is what love looks like um, uh, under adversity. But I, I think in rising to the challenges of um, that, in, in rising to the challenges that are set before it, that's that's how love actually grows. But if you prefer, you can just look at it as as sort of realizing the implications of something uh, more concretely, which you previously only sort of knew abstractly. Either way, we're learning what love is, and or we're growing in love, and I think those those two claims are equivalent. So just grant me for a second that you know this world. Its purpose, the purpose of all the challenges that we go through in our lives is to increase in love. So that at the end of this life, you know, we have, a, we have developed a moral virtue, um, love. And, 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 um, you know, in, in some way that's like actually, it reflects a, a free choice or a set of cumulative free choices on our parts. Now imagine that before, uh, we died before we turned 20. God just gave us all that love and wisdom that it was supposed to be the point of our lives to learn. Well, quite apart from anything else, that wouldn't be free. That would just be an imposition of something onto our nature that was otherwise foreign to it. Um, equivalently, it's a little bit like imagining that, you know, as many Christian theists do, that at the end of our lives, God just zaps us with moral perfection. But I mean, the thing is, that's that's not free, um, and um, you know, it doesn't reflect our our own free decisions. It doesn't reflect our own nature. And if it were legitimate for God to do that after death, why doesn't He just do it before death? Um, uh, but what do I mean, legitimate? I, I I mean that God loves us, and He wants us to freely return His love, and and that if and He wants us to you know love other people freely too. And if he just imposes that love on us uh, in such a way that, you know, it does not reflect our own free choices, um, then, you know, then we arguably are not loving at all. Like unfree love or compelled love is, is, an, is an oxymoron. Uh, so, you know, it's like for limited beings like us to grow in love freely, um, or learn love freely, we have to face adversity and limitations. Although, of course, this is where 
which is where sort of new age thinkers might come in and say, yep, that's right. You know, it's like you never stop growing. You never, you never reach this point of static moral perfection. Um, you're always growing in the face of limitation and adversity, which I think might, might actually even be true for the rest of eternity in, in, in some way. But, but where the new agers uh, are wrong, I think, and I have an episode on reincarnation um, about this, is, you know, in their claim that, uh, you know, we, we undergo reincarnation. In other words, once we learn a bunch of lessons about love and moral character, then we willingly choose to forget uh, those, uh, that knowledge, uh, so that we can face a hard test of sort of like relearning that knowledge in the face of, you know, the difficult condition of, of, of no longer having it, at least temporarily no longer having it. But, you know, honestly, this view is, is, is kind of crazy because it really is just supposing that we're, uh, forgetting something for the sake of relearning it. Like, Let's say I die and I'm at some heightened level of moral development. At my present level of moral development, you know, one can either put a test before me from which I would grow uh, in overcoming it, or one cannot because I'm just too morally developed for the test to be challenging. Well, if I'm sort of too morally advanced for the test to be of any difficulty for me, then the logical thing to do is not for me to forget what I learned because acquiring knowledge was the whole point of, you know, taking any tests in the first place. So this whole reincarnation thing, or at least reincarnation without persistence of memory, this is just a complete non-starter. So, you know, I, I do believe like a lot of new age folks do that you know, the point of this difficulty and adversity is to learn love, but, but don't worry. I, I'm not, I don't believe in, you know, that reincarnation stuff, which at best just is just, you know, it's like, long intervals of of temporary amnesia that really just needlessly slow down the learning process it's just it's just by definition it's just a huge instance of waste and, and and inefficiency i don't believe ultimate reality is faced by any external constraints such that it has to uh ordain uh you know that is that god has to ordain any amount of waste or inefficiency in his design of you know the universe and his design for us uh, and our existence all that okay so i've been claiming that you know limited beings have to encounter limitation in order to come by love freely um and uh and i would claim moreover that you know for this limitation this a kind of limitation to exist, the world has to at least appear to be senseless on, on the surface. And and why do I say that? Because there's, otherwise there's no skin in the game. Arguably, if you can't love in the face of difficulty and danger, then you can't love at all. Um, if it was obvious uh, that God existed and was sort of um, the divine cop, you know, enforcing uh, uh, the ultimate morality of love, at every turn, uh, then there would be no distinction between acting out of self-interest and acting out of love. You know, no one could really do anything for selfless reasons because they would all just think it's, you know, I have to do it for my own self-interest because I know God is there in the, in the center of the tower in the panopticon and he's watching everything that I do. 
and there's good rewards for for me for behaving in selfless ways supposedly selfless ways and you know bad results for me if i step out of line you know then i get the shock from the shock collar so no it god has to appear to be hidden and 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 um this entails a number of things that it means that our world should be one in which um god's existence is sort of hard to hard to see even if you can figure it abstractly so assuming you can um uh, you know, it's still hard to believe in at times just because of the magnitude of suffering that you encounter. Or you may believe in God for sort of dogmatic fundamentalist reasons, but you're kidding yourself if you believe you can, you know, prove your, your, your belief in, in God. That's a, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, it's hard if you, you know, only reference scriptures because then you're just, you know, doing a circular argument. You know, I think if you take it to the level of pure philosophy and metaphysics, then Ultimately, God becomes quite inarguable. So, you know, what does a senseless world look like? A senseless world looks like is like like a world in which um, uh, bad things happen to good people, or the prayers of good people or of believers go unanswered. And because you think about it, it's like if you know your your Christian neighbors, you know like their kid fell out of a tree and was paralyzed from the neck down, but then they just prayed and then immediately the kid got better, which may, actually may happen sometimes, but it has to happen seldom enough that the following, you know, scenario does not get played out. You know, like, you know, I, I, I'm not a Christian. My neighbors are Christian. Their kid has a horrible accident, but then they pray and immediately the kid is healed. I'm like, whoa, their God exists. Let me just out of complete self-interest do everything that I think that God wants me to do. And moreover, if it turns out that, you know, you can do the will of that God easily because anytime you need something, you just pray to that God and, and it happens and you overcome all obstacles, you know, then it, is it ever the case that, you know, you stop acting out of self-interest and you start acting out of love for God? Whereas if you're trying to follow the will of this God who is laying down um, circumstances of tragedy that are really so difficult to accept that just continuing, you know, to put on your clothes each day and do your job and, 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 you know, continuing to stretch out your hands in faith, even though just the accepting the reality into which you've been thrown is, 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 is a profound act of love, you know, then, then, um, uh, you know, that, that act acting on 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 the will of God, or you know trying to do God's will, you know in the face of, you know, uh, tremendous, and uh, superficially senseless suffering, you know that does require real love. Doing performing that test demonstrates real love, and I think in in, in being made to take that test, one's love grows. But this is this is a hard thing to say, and 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 really. For me, I, I pray every day that God would not make the test any harder than it has to be. I pray every day that he would not uh, and uh, subject me to loss the way that he subjects, has subjected, you know, uh, many people that I know. And you might say, well, you know, that's pathetic because already you're giving the lie to your own theodicy. You don't, you don't believe what you claim to believe. It, or you know, it's it's not right that anyone you know should believe this, but 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 the truth of the matter is that 
no one's getting out of this life in one piece. You know that this terrible tragedy is going to happen to you sooner or later. The only question is when and in what ways. So it's like, you know, I'm in that, you know, classically human situation of realizing that, but at the same time, just like having to be dragged kicking and screaming in order to realize that, you know, just like in the gospels, he says, Lord, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly us. We're in that state of becoming or, or, or assuming greater moral virtue. And it's, and it's, it's painful, at least in the beginning, but really if if you if one really knew beyond doubt that god existed and this kind of faith can be cultivated even though god doesn't necessarily make it easy and then one then you know one doesn't suffer as you know one isn't just being tortured by god one understands that that the, you know one's loved ones are are going to be seen that death is is by no means the end uh the idea that that this human life, these three score years and ten are all there are, and 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 death is 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 of insurmountable significance. It's just a, it's just it's just an unbelieving materialistic perspective. It's 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 a perspective that one only has if one's never made any effort to really wrap one's mind around it. You know, the fact and the implications of God's existence, which on some level one can only do. You know, if one has a powerful love of truth, which is also an in the limit love of God. So in other words, that that too is a test of love. So uh, again, to continue my earlier point, the world has to, uh, God has to be, uh, has to appear to be hidden from this world. And that gives this world the appearance of, of senselessness. To see God in this world, clearly beyond a shadow of a doubt all the time um, would be to see the sense of this world and it would uh, be uh, for, for the for the limitations or the tests that we're here to face uh, to lose all difficulty i recognize this is a hard thing to say it's also you know hard to 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 believe it you know all the way down um in you know in in one's bones but you know that's that's the point of this test so because this world has to at least appear to be senseless that explains certain troubling features about it um you know it's like this world seems to be a a, a sort of more or less complete ensemble of physical laws that that don't seem to uh you know, point to the existence of any higher power, uh, or at least not to require superficially um, the existence of any higher power. Of course, if metaphysically you investigate the questions deeper, you realize you know there needs to be one. Um, uh, uh, and you know, so this is a sort of illusion, and and it's an illusion which can exist only this side of the grave, because once you die, and you realize that you're not in fact dead, then you know there's some higher power than you know the laws of nature. Um, but, you know, that these laws should be complete, at least most of the time, you know, in other words, if miracles are to be rare, and these, these, these laws are going to be consistent most of the time, that means we're not spared things like cancer or natural disasters, things which are the necessary outgrowth of those laws, we're not spared, you know, or I mean, the cosmos is not spared all the 
the eons of animal suffering that preceded uh, the existence of, of humans, because that animal suffering is the necessary outgrowth of evolution, which in turn is the necessary outgrowth of these consistent physical laws, um, whose uh, predictability gives our existence, you know, gives us a sense of, you know, stability and autonomy within limits, you know, but this, you know, uh, stability and autonomy afforded by the predictability of our environment is also a prerequisite for learning as, you know, finite agents who develop, you know, in, in, in knowledge of truth and, and love toward God. So, but, uh, uh, for me, uh, the animal suffering is, is part of this necessary appearance of senselessness. Um, another way to express this is, is like, um, I look at this, you know, I, I, I believe that God is a maximizer of utility. Um, but when I look at this world, I can't say that, uh, it is a world in which, you know, uh, everyone's, you know, every conscious creature's utility is maximized. At least it's clearly not the, uh, you know, not maximized over a short time frame. So, um, the only alternative, if God exists, and, you know, I think it's pretty inarguable that he does, the only alternative is that this existence is a sort of preamble or, or introduction to existence over a much longer uh, time frame, over which time frame utility is maximized. So if this existence that we, this earthly existence, you know, um, is not itself yet the condition of, you know, maximizing everyone's utility, then what is it? You know, I think it's logical to assume that it is instead some kind of test. But a test is not something which can be, you know, it's a test of uh, essentially, you know, moral virtue, moral moral capabilities. But it's not a test which animals can take because they lack the requisite cognitive development. So on some level, I do view at least this planet, at least up until, you know, this point in history, as being all about humans. Animals sort of exist instrumentally uh, to our education as part of this simulation, as it were. Uh, you know, if you read the CTMU, it says God slash ultimate reality is a self simulation, as it must be, because there's nothing outside it that could be simulating it, which is always a question left unaddressed in conventional simulation hypotheses. But, um, uh, does this mean that I believe that God does not value animals intrinsically? No, I, 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 I don't believe that God values animals only extrinsically. Um, I believe that God is love, um, as explained in two earlier episodes, eight and nine, and pretty much all my others. And so I believe that it's the most likely thing from my point of view is that actually God values animals intrinsically too. And to value something intrinsically, to love it, to love a, a conscious being intrinsically is to want to provide them with the best existence possible. So I think it's actually natural from where I stand to assume that God is going to grant them continued existence after they die and at a sort of uh, maximally uh, uh, happy or hedonic or blissful or whatever you want to call it, um, rewarding existence for each animal given the kind of being that it is 
And you might say, well, that's actually just too much trouble for God to do. It's not within his power, um, or he would like to, but it's just eh, too much effort. It's like there's nothing that it's too much effort for God to do. Um, and um, uh, I, I believe that if God is sort of love in the nature of his being, then that he in fact probably does this. In other words, not just for the animals that were beloved of humans, but certainly at least for those, like the pets, but I think for all animals. What about amoebas and mosquitoes? Well, can they feel anything? I'm not sure. Um, I think maybe they sort of can. I think, I think everything maybe is conscious in some way, although it's terribly difficult to imagine the consciousness of a being that has neither, you know, intelligence or self-awareness, nor even, um, uh, utility parameters or emotions or anything like that. So it's, you know, I, I don't know the answer to amoebas and mosquitoes, but is it within God's power to give them their maximally rewarding existence, assuming such a thing is meaningful to speak of? Of course it is. But yeah, just to be clear, in order for God to have prevented all this animal suffering, you know, it, it would mean that he would have to do miracles to interfere in his own natural laws. He would have to prevent evolution itself or prevent evolution from being ugly, which is just another way of saying he would have to prevent evolution. But, you know, evolution is, is an important part, I think, of this, this uh, simulation or this, this moral test that, that we're, you know, uh, thrown into. It's another way of, of making uh, uh, the, the universe or the cosmos uh, or nature uh, appear not to need God. I really think that's quite deliberate. I think if, if God if God wanted it to be easier for us to know his existence with certainty, he would have made it easier. Okay, so hopefully I've done some kind of job explaining that um, the purpose of this existence is that for us to learn to love other people at first, but in the limit, God, uh, in an apparently you know senseless world or a world that at least appears to be senseless at first, which is just another way of saying that it contains many limitations and, 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 um, and, and much suffering. Now, uh, uh, the, the standard or some standard objections to this so-called so Irenaean or soul-making theodicy, or at least my particular twist, twist on it, um, is that there are some tests in this life that people never get over. They, they face a level of suffering that they can never accept, and that prevents them from being able to love other people, uh, and even, you know, to, to, or especially to love God as, as the perpetrator of that suffering. And of course, there are many examples of this. Um, oddly enough, I mean, there, there's some people who just go through tremendous suffering, but, but they still, believe in God and love God and accept what happens as, as, you know, as God's will. And there's other people who just can't do this. And, and so, you know, the objection is, what do we make of these latter people? Does that not, you know, uh, present an irrefutable uh, objection to, to soul-making theodicy? And the thing to really notice here is that we don't know that these people never accept their fate or that they never, um, uh, uh, 
manage to love in spite of this difficulty that they never pass this test because all we see is that they didn't they didn't pass the test in this life but existence doesn't end with you know physical death existence goes on for eternity afterward so in order for these objections to have force you know i i would have to believe that not only did these people never you know pass the test uh in this life they just never ever ever will pass it over the rest of eternity it's just so horrible you know time may heal all heal all wounds and you know the rest of eternity may be sort of a you know an infinite um surfeit of time but that wound will never ever heal i just know it's like <laughs> okay okay um from from my point of view as callous as it may sound it seems to me like if there's the rest of eternity um uh in in which in which to pass a moral test or accept some difficult tragedy one cannot but eventually succeed in passing the test or accepting the tragedy whatever whatever language you want to use and that when you do you will have grown in moral virtue because the love it takes to love in spite of that uh suffering and tragedy is is a greater love than than existed before uh that the imposition of that test but i recognize it sounds very heartless but from the point of view of eternity it's like they do you know god and his angels do have sort of in a way a view of us that we would consider heartless because from their point of view we exist forever and it's up to them who who continues to exist and who is annihilated if if anyone is like from their point of view it's like we got this it's good don't worry and if we could love enough you know as it says in the bible love casts out fear um and if we could be just trust god then we wouldn't suffer so much but again easier said than done i'm the worst at this i'm i'm the absolute worst um so i'm not trying to hold myself up as a moral example i'm just trying to explain uh my sort of uh, rational theodicy in in terms that that make sense um if anyone has been listening to this uh podcast in a time of you know great loss um or just you know any significant emotional suffering uh i apologize if if anything i said sounded like it was mocking you um cuz that was not my intention despite all my personal neuroticism and 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 anxieties i've had a very comfortable life and i i can't say that i've yet learned to be appropriately sensitive um to the suffering of other people that's something god is going to make me learn to do as well um okay i'm getting the warning that that my time is running out um so uh thank you for listening um Until next time.